I'm John Banther, and this is Classical Breakdown. From Classical WETA in Washington, we take you behind the music. In this episode, I'm joined by Classical WETA's Bill Bukowski, and we're talking about one of the most popular symphonies of all time, Dvorak's Symphony No. 9, From the New World. It often takes number one in our annual classical countdown, but there's a lot you may not know about its origins, inspirations, and Dvorak's call to action for American composers. Plus, we'll be listening to musical examples featuring the National Symphony Orchestra and maestro John Andrea Nozeda. That's one of the more recognizable and comforting tunes, isn't it, Bill? Indeed, indeed. And so many of us think that it's a spiritual, myself included growing up, thinking that it was a spiritual sometime before Dvorak and it influenced him, but it's actually kind of the other way around. It was Dvorak that came up with a tune for his Symphony Number no. 9 from the New World in that second movement. And then it was decades later that actually a student of Dvorak's would write words to this melody in 1922. It was um, William Arms Fisher. But we find that just all over the place. It's comforting. It's in hymnals. It's sung at funerals. It's just something that's in our culture. And Dvorak's Symphony No. 9 from the New World, it's one of the most popular symphonies for a reason. It's a joy to listen to. Each recording can offer something new. And I think it has a lot of sounds that we identify with here in America, in the United States. But I think there's a lot about the origins that a lot of people don't know. So maybe, Bill, why was Antonin Dvorak even in the United States starting in 1892? Well, John, it's an interesting story. There was a fascinating uh, character, a woman named Jeanette Thurber. Her husband was um, a millionaire. He had a, a, made a fortune in the grocery business. And she was passionate about the arts, especially music. And she had all these grandiose ideas. One idea that didn't pan out was an opera company to compete with the Metropolitan Opera that would sing operas in English. Okay. That didn't really go anywhere. So the next one was uh, a national conservatory. And she needed a big name, a big name to head this conservatory. And the name that popped into her head or was suggested to her was Antonin Dvorak. So... She uh, made overtures, pressed him, cajoled him. He didn't really want to do it. He was doing okay teaching back home in in, uh, the Czech Republic or what was Bohemia at that particular time. But eventually she did bring him over, the idea being that she wanted homegrown American students to study here instead of having to study abroad like most musicians and composers were doing at the time. They went to Europe to learn things. She wanted them to learn here. It was a, a wonderful idea. And uh, she finally uh, twisted Dvorak's arm enough and uh, brought him over to head this conservatory. And I've read that it was a pretty forward-thinking conservatory at the time as well. It was racially integrated. There were women. They wanted education for people with disabilities, which was all, I mean, pretty fantastic. And, of course, getting Dvorak, I mean— it's a big deal when you, you know, you move to Europe, for instance, from here today. I mean, this is 1892, Dvorak's changing his entire life. Right. 
and maybe and sometimes people took this journey knowing they might not ever be able to go back. Yeah, and it actually was a good fit when you think about the way she was expanding and bringing different people in different races, uh, sexes. Dvorak himself was sort of he was very famous at the time, but at the same time he was sort of considered from the hinterlands. He also was not in a he he was a minority in the country that he lived in. Okay. And I think talking about the conservatory is important because I think it was a really important part for the symphony and what it introduced to Dvorak. For instance, it introduced him to Harry T. Burley, a young African-American student, a singer that Dvorak hired to be his assistant. And Burley was already known as a great singer at the conservatory. And it was there he sang spirituals for Dvorak. And Dvorak apparently just was enthralled, in love with his singing, and in love with the music and its importance. Songs like Deep River, Go Down Moses, and Swing Low Sweet Chariot, apparently a favorite for Dvorak. And what's also incredible is that Burley is singing him these spirituals, and Burley learned them from his grandfather, who was a former slave. Right, and and Burley, too, was very, very perceptive and very sharp and very outgoing in this particular point. I think that he knew, knowing Dvorak and his reputation and his music, he knew that Dvorak would be very receptive to hearing these traditional tunes from his culture, and he was absolutely right. And in fact, in 1893, before the symphony premiered, Dvorak in the New York Herald said this. In 1893, he said, quote, I am convinced that the future music of this country must be founded on what are called Negro melodies. These can be the foundation of a serious and original school of composition to be developed in the United States. These beautiful and varied themes are the product of the soil. They are the folk songs of America, and your composers must turn to them. This was less than 30 years after the end of slavery. And here is Dvorak in a major newspaper giving a call to action for American composers. Yeah, and you can imagine how that landed at this particular time, very shortly after the abolition of slavery, that it wasn't received very well, let's say, on this side of the Atlantic. And from what I hear, too, from what I've read, too, it was not received very well over in Europe either. But Dvorak knew something. He knew something that those others didn't know, which was that A country best expresses itself when it reaches deep down into its own musical traditions. And that's what he was calling for American composers to do. It was largely ignored. There were a couple that that tried, but it's amazing that this was so short after the end of slavery. And he's also combining in this symphony those ideals. And I think Dvorak, Bill, was kind of surprised to hear this rich American folk music and culture. When he was in Bohemia at home, he heard some music of Native American, maybe, we think. But he comes to the United States, and it seems like he's sitting here, and he knows that everyone's going to Europe to learn, you know, the melodies and the ideas from them. And he's over here, and he's looking at them, and he's saying, and hearing the spirituals and music, and he's like, well, what are you doing? You have all the music. You have everything right here in front of you. Well, and that was was where Dvorak was coming from in his own work. His own music was inspired by the folk music and the rich folk music tradition of his own land. And this to him was his meat and potatoes. So he comes over here and he hears this and he had not heard this before. And he's like, yeah, this is it. This needs to be the foundation of the music of the American people. And he was right. So how does he combine these sounds and ideals into his Ninth Symphony? He was also quoted saying this. He said, 
I have not actually used any of the Native American or spiritual melodies. I have simply written original themes embodying the peculiarities of the Indian music, and using these themes as subjects, have developed them with all the resources of modern rhythms, counterpoint, and orchestral color. So he's saying there aren't specific songs or melodies you can say, oh, this comes from that or this comes from that. But he's doing what he said, using them as subjects, ideas that he then develops with the classical tradition. Right. Like anything else with Dvorak, he was taking music or concepts or or folklore and forming it into his own music. He was making it original for the what he wanted to do. That's right. But in terms of some literature that he he knew of, for instance, Longfellow's Song of Hiawatha, the epic poem, he had actually read, I think, a German translation of this before he even came to the U.S. And we'll get to that and its moments of inspiration in the music later. But in regards to embodying the characteristics that he just talked about with um, using the themes as subjects, developing them, he uses something a lot here that we call pentatonic scales. Now, you might not know them by name, pentatonic, but you're definitely familiar with their um, sound. So for instance, if we have a, a major scale, we have seven notes, C, D, E, F, G, A, B, and then we've got the next C. As the name kind of suggests, pentatonic, penta, there are five notes that encompass this same amount of distance, but we skip a couple of notes. We, if we give them numbers, we skip four, and we skip seven. So we would have C, D, E, skip F, G and A, skip B, and then go to C. And it's that familiar sound that is in folk music kind of all over the world in major and minor and different modes as we call them. But that's kind of the gist of it. And for instance, right away, something we can kind of recognize, the beginning of O Susanna. So he uses this pentatonic scale in that second movement going home. He uses it for that powerful theme in the fourth movement um, at the top. And Burley did claim that Dvorak was referencing Swing Low, Sweet Chariot in the first movement. Now, Dvorak never said explicitly that's what this is, and we don't have any real evidence for that. But I think it's a great example of what Dvorak was talking about before. So, for instance, Bill, if we hear a little bit of Swing low, sweet chariot. Now we can hear how he uses those same notes in this way in the first movement. It's not a direct quote. He's using the notes. He's even using the same energy, faster rhythms going up, but it's just that for me, it's that genius of Dvorak. It's taking that and just twisting and turning it around into something else, but it still has that kind of quality to it. Right, yeah. He's just basically, he's reorganizing the notes, but he's using that folk scale, that pentatonic scale. Exactly. And we find that throughout this symphony, and I think we find some pretty amazing kind of firsts, in my opinion, but we'll get to that in a little bit. So, He's at the conservatory. He's getting influenced by Burley and his singing, Song of Hiawatha, some literature, and he's using these pentatonic scales. 
The symphony itself was commissioned by the New York Philharmonic in 1893. He wrote most of it in New York City, but he finished it in Spillville, Iowa, which at first is kind of seems kind of random, doesn't it? Why is he now in Iowa? Yeah, Spillville, Iowa was a longtime Bohemian enclave. As a matter of fact, uh, still there's, there still is a presence there today. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, near Cedar Rapids, there's a National uh, Czech and Slovak Folk Museum based there too. So this is where Dvorak would go in the summertime to... Uh, get away from the city like most people that spend his summer vacations. And he found it a little frightening. The, the wide open spaces sort of spooked him a little, apparently. But uh, he also found it wonderfully restorative and uh, inspirational. Okay. I didn't think about that, him kind of being spooked, I guess, from where he's from. The, is, the terrain is varied. It's mountainous Yeah, and it's, stuff. He, he comes from a very mountainous, hilly area. And to come to a place where you've just got fields of wheat and grass just stretching for miles and miles on end with, you know, a vanishing point, uh, it just made him feel a little, as, as he said, just a little unsettled. He wasn't wasn't quite used to that much openness around him. I think I know that feeling because the first time I was in Iowa, not even too long ago, just years ago, it was, I mean, it was so flat. It was, it was almost startling. Right. Yeah. If you're not prepared for it, it can be very startling. Okay, Bill. And with that, we will get into the music next with a fantastic recording right after this. So we get into the music now with a great recording. It's a recent one from the National Symphony Orchestra with Maestro John Andrea Nozeda conducting. This is a really fun one to listen to, and I think it's going to really highlight all of these things that we've been talking about so far. So let's listen to just the opening of this symphony for a moment. Bill, I kind of think about the name of the symphony. We often say New World Symphony, but it's from the New World. It's kind of a greetings from here to back home, right? It sounds kind of warm and nostalgic. Yeah, I've always seen this as his love letter home or a postcard home, like uh, having a wonderful time, wish I were back home, <laughs> wish I were there. Because there's also a lot of melancholy here. Uh, Dvorak was definitely homesick. And this, remember, was too, uh, we didn't actually point that out. He made two trips to America to to work at the conservatory. And this was from his first trip. So this was the first major work that he wrote right after he got here. Okay. And of course, again, it's it's the 1890s. You know, people make these long journeys with the expectation that in the back of your mind, you may not be able to get back home. Yeah. The, the other interesting thing too was that he came over with his wife and his eldest son and daughter and left the other children at home initially. Once they had settled and made a house, he brought the other children back with him. They finally came 
over with him and he was rejoined with them during the summer when they were in Spillville. So I, I think that also helped him to feel a lot better too. But uh-huh. again, if they weren't, they didn't all come over at once. That's difficult. It continues with this intense, like, you know, listen, listen to me, this important statement. And then it goes to kind of this desolate decrescendo in the bases. And it kind of reminds me of maybe now that you're saying the spooky flatness of, of Iowa, whether it's he wrote that he came up with that there or not, but it's kind of that spooky atmosphere. And it's maybe something even from um, Jean Sibelius. A, a sense of mystery and uh, wonder at the vastness of nature. And it's at this point we get introduced to a very important theme. And it's just this kind of rising and falling theme. And it's just so simple. And that's the thing with a lot of the melodies and ideas we hear in the symphony. They're on the shorter side, almost more like on the folk side. And it's something that you can just walk away from and be whistling the next day. It is just immediately kind of like an earworm. That's one of the things I love about Dvorak so much is that he had a real gift for melody. And and melodies just poured right out of him. And as soon as you're getting into one, another new one comes in. Um, it's, It's a feast. It's a melodic feast. And I think he also continues with what he talked about before, combining the ideals that he mentioned with modern classical counterpoint and and rhythm because he uses the theme again. And then there is this kind of counterpoint sequence, basically just kind of higher notes and lower notes interacting with each other. We have that really simple theme, but then followed up with something I can imagine Bach playing at the organ. Yeah, that's actually a good, that's a good analogy. Bill, we get to a point in the symphony where it's kind of like, you know, what came first, the chicken or the egg? And I feel like here, maybe it's best introduced by someone not from here. That is kind of our American pastoral sound. It feels like this is the birth of that sound. And it's, It feels like it's already existed and it just took Dvorak to point it out to us. It's a sound we hear for generations in American composers, but we hear it here maybe first? Yeah, I, I think that American music has a voice now, and we can thank Antonin Dvorak for helping us find it. And again, we had that idea we heard actually in the beginning talking about pentatonic scales and swing low, sweet cherry. That's how he's using it there in the flute with just embodying that sound. And he gets, as you said, also very, very intense in here as well at certain moments. I want to play something here for a second, and then kind of we can hear how Dvorak is using time in the sense of vertical and horizontal. And what I mean by kind of vertical or or horizontal, it starts off horizontal with that 
long overarching theme and then we get to dun, 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 just kind of up and down up and down up and down and he, we see that in a lot of the movements he's juxtaposing these two things right next to each other and he does that a couple of times all the way to the end of this movement and at the premiere after every movement i read that the audience was standing and applauding and he Dvorak actually had to kind of acknowledge the audience after each movement I understand this was like one of his greatest uh, symphonic debuts ever. Oh, I can imagine. I mean, the themes are instantly recognizable, the kind of American sound that we're identifying with and hearing it for the first time and the end of the first movement, at least. I mean, it rocks. I yes, mean, you it does. Are... It does. And that brings us to the second movement, which is absolutely beautiful. And this movement and the fourth movement start off a little unusual, it seems, in this symphonic repertoire in that we just start with this deep, dark brass chorale. sounds so solemn, so important. It's just a few notes and it opens with this chorale. Usually you find brass chorales as kind of an intermediary thing later on in a, in a movement, but he starts it with this. Yeah, there's a real warmth that I think extends from the landscape, the musical landscape that we were talking about in the first movement, right into the second movement. And that warmth just pulls you along and draws you to what we're going to be hearing next, which is really fabulous. There's almost not much to say. I mean, it's so moving. Words are hard to express it. I mean, that's why, well, in music form with William Arms Fisher giving it lyrics, but it's so powerful in just a few notes. And maybe the greatest English horn solo ever. I think so. I would rather play this than the Symphony Fantastique you find by Berlioz. Right. It's incredible. And we find it in our culture in all kinds of places. But before we mention just briefly... Longfellow's Song of Hiawatha, this epic poem that Dvorak had actually already read in German in Bohemia, and then I believe he also read in English in the United States. And many, many sources, people close to Dvorak have said over and over again that he was actually inspired by moments of Song of Hiawatha for the second movement and in the third movement. And the second movement is we'll get to in a second, we'll listen to what is kind of the death of Minnehaha, the death of the woman that Hiawatha loved. And it's very solemn. It's it's in C-sharp minor. And it was also going to be a stepping stone inspired by the conservatory founder, Jeanette Thurber. She was telling him he needs to write a cantata or an opera on right. the Song of Hiawatha. And this was that stepping stone. Unfortunately, that never happened. Yeah, she she gave him the libretto and was really pressing him to do it. But the libretto wasn't very good. Dvorak <laughs> didn't really see much possibility in it. So he, at least he set that concept aside. But I think he used the, he drew inspiration for this particular symphony we're listening to. 
end right here with what many say is a reference to the death of Minnehaha. The winds have some of the best lines in this whole symphony. Yeah, it's not just the English horn, right? Right. And I'll tell you, as a tuba player, it's a hard symphony. It's one that I always just passed off as every other tuba player does because you only play 14 notes in the whole symphony and you only play them in the second movement. The opening chorale we heard, and then at the end, and that's it. You sit for the entire time. Well, that doesn't seem fair to you. It doesn't seem fair... But the more I listen to it, the more I understand the sound that Dvorak was using and the weight that tuba adds specifically in this chorale. And there's a story, if I can tell you. It's kind of legendary. So tuba players often, you know, hate playing this because you barely play and kind of bitter. And sometimes a conductor will start a rehearsal with just your part. And then they say, all right, see you Thursday night or Friday for the concert. I won't use any names because that will give it away, but there's this legend of this tuba player, still playing, of course, in his orchestra, in which he has tenure, he brought a rolly kind of office chair on stage without arms. So it looked like a normal chair, but it had wheels on it. So he played the second movement, opening chorale, played the end of the movement, and then slowly, almost imperceptibly, inch by inch, (laughs) moved, wait a minute, move. Wait a minute. Apparently, by the end of the third movement, he was off stage packing his horn up. You know, by the end of the symphony, he's at home, you know, in front of the TV on the couch enjoying a beer. That's fascinating. Now, whether that's true or not, I mean, many say it is, but, well, I just can't let that story go by. That brings us to the third movement, which has uh, just an incredible opening that reminds us of another composer. Reminds me a little bit of Beethoven's Symphony Number no. Nine. Yeah, thank you. I never, I've never picked that up before. Thank okay. you. Okay, because it's got that rhythm with the timpani, and it. Well, then it just jumps into a dance, and this is apparently in reference to in Song of Hiawatha, the wedding feast. There's um, a lot of dancing, and that's what we hear in this um, movement. I just love this because of the intense driving rhythm. And when you listen to this, especially the NSO, the lower strings, they are emphasizing, putting accents on just certain notes that Dvorak wants you to to add them to that makes it a little off kilter and it just makes the driving rhythm even more intense. Sort of like a dance, right? Exactly like a dance. One of my favorite moments in the symphony, Bill, because I just laugh when I think about it, He's combining this American sound, but also with his sound of home, right? There's bohemian elements here in some of like waltz-like sections and, and dances as well. Right, right. We hear this part where it sounds a bit Czech, and then suddenly we're in some kind of western frontier town.
You know, John, it almost sounds like something from uh, Aaron Copeland's Billy the Kid. That's exactly the sound. I mean, I was about to say to you, you know, howdy, Bill. Right. And, and, but it, the, here's the other interesting thing. It also sounds remarkably like one of his Slavonic dances, too. Okay. He's combining these sounds, and I say listen to it a couple of times because how he gets into this kind of frontier town sound, we've got something in minor, and then with just one note, it changes to major, and that kind of introduces us to this new landscape. That it sounds like it's a bit of a combination of, you know, Slavonic dance and also American frontier town. That right. would then influence people like Aaron Copeland. Exactly. That brings us to the fourth movement, which has one of the more interesting openings, kind of like I mentioned with the second here. I mean, some people say it's the Jaws opening. Sounds like a little bit of Jaws. And then it goes into this, one of the most heroic tunes that I know of in classical music. And actually, John, there's something else in there, too. Can, okay. can we just play that beginning again? You know what you're hearing? What? Doesn't it sound a little bit like a steam train getting ready to go? Okay. Now, see, this touches on another thing about Dvorak. Dvorak had a couple of different interesting hobbies, and one of them was train spotting. Really? He loved, loved loved trains. As a matter of fact, how you want to know how much he loved them? He actually got busted in New York because he climbed over a fence to get a closer look at the trains at the, at the station there in, in New York. He just loved trains. Train spotting was one of his hobbies. And a lot of times when you listen to Dvorak music, you hear the, the woodwinds playing bird song. Dvorak also loved birds. He also, he kept pigeons. He was into pigeons as well. But trains was another passion of Dvorak. And I think that's what you hear right there in that first part of that opening movement. Oh my gosh. I never knew that. That is amazing. It does sound like a train starting up back then. It's, yeah, it's that slow right. building up of a, like a steam engine. Yep. This one, I'll just mention briefly, Dvorak never said this is inspired by anything from Song of Hiawatha. But there are some uncanny kind of comparisons and, and ways you can put them together. I'll put a link on the show notes page, a video of basically part of the Hiawatha melodrama that post-classical ensemble came up with. And they're combining words from Song of Hiawatha, specifically the Hunt of Papu Kiwis, with this opening here. In fact, most of the fourth movement as well. There's this moment where it's describing Hiawatha running through a forest, and it just fits perfectly, but it's also here just a complete juxtaposition to that theme we just heard. I'm just loving the symphony more and more each time I hear it. Yeah, you know, I was sitting here thinking, I've probably heard this symphony 492 times and I never get tired of it. But I'm already now, uh, thanks to you in this conversation, I'm hearing things that I hadn't heard before. Well, that's, that's how it is. And, you know, ask us in a year. 
right. what we're going to think. It's going to be something different. Maybe by that time I'll have read the Song of Hiawatha. Oh, I've got it right here. Okay, thanks. He does something else here in the in the music, technically in the music. He adds these grace notes. And grace notes are basically just tiny little notes that are added to the front of another note. So, brum, 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 as opposed to bum, bum, bum. And it can give it a dance-like quality in many ways. And he uses it for the, like, like the entire string section or the entire violin sections here in this movement. And it gives it a totally different kind of flair or sound that you don't even recognize right away. It's just perfect writing so that it doesn't call attention to itself. That's a sound we hear in American folk music, I believe. And so I'm wondering, especially in dances, we have some Czech dance influence, and maybe that's also what's happening here with these grace notes, because it's the only time that it appears. It's in no other movement. Right. Dvorak also combines all of these things together from previous movements, um, some of the themes that we've heard so far. We've got the powerful opening fourth movement theme. And then at the same time with the strings, we've got what I called, you know, running through the forest theme all stacked together at the same time. He's bringing, yeah, he really is bringing it all together in the final movement. And it's something that you said a long time ago on our What is a Symphony episode that always sticks with me. And that is a symphony is solving like a musical problem. You've got these different elements and ideas that are presented to us. And then at the end, it's kind of the solution, um, if you will. And that's what he's doing, combining these all together. Yes, that's exactly it. This is a textbook example of the of a symphony. I'm mentioning Song of Hiawatha again because it seems like the end here is very programmatic. I've heard many conductors, big conductors, say that there's there has to be a story here, either one you make up or something, but... This isn't just the end of a symphony, as magnificent as it is, you know, like Beethoven's Fifth. There's something special here because we have a kind of dirge, like a funeral dirge with timpani gently tapping in the background. feels like there's there's something there. Yeah, it's 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 an interesting ending to a symphony that that starts out warm and positive and then it sort of it almost ends in a tinge of melancholy again. And then moments later the actual end of the symphony is quite peculiar. You expect as we're listening it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger and then it's going to have this huge finish, but there's this big note and then it's just the winds sustaining and then decrescendoing into nothing. That's so remarkable. And there's, I'm coming up short with examples of this 
idea before this actually happened. Yeah, I, I can't think of it either. I'm, the other symphony I can think that ends sort of similarly, Bang Bang and then Quiet, was maybe Brahms's third. And I know Dvorak and Brahms were a mutual admiration society. That's true. And if we think about the um, Hiawatha melodrama that you can check out online that combines the poem with his music, especially really his Ninth Symphony, the final lines of the poem and combined here, I think it fits well. It's, Thus departed Hiawatha, Hiawatha the beloved, in the glory of the sunset and the purple mists of evening. I think that fits quite well. For me, that's the story that I like to make up as I listen to it, especially the end there. But it's a symphony that takes us all over the place from, you know, two-horse frontier town to Bohemia with Native American spiritual themes and just almost like he's introducing us to our own sound for the first time. Right, exactly. So I guess the question is, what was next for Dvorak? Very few composers followed his lead, and he was in the United States for a little bit longer. He also wrote his American String Quartet, which brings us some of the same ideals, and he left home for Europe in 1895. Yeah, never to return um, after his second trip. You know, I, I was thinking about this, what you were saying there, and there was a couple of things that happened in music after Dvorak died. One was Arnold Schoenberg in the 12-tone system uh, in the early years of the 20th century. And then jazz came in in the 1920s and then really took off. So Dvorak, in a sense, was sort of ahead of his time. But it was those two developments that got composers thinking again. And finally, in the 20s and 30s, uh, homegrown American composers were starting to think back on Dvorak's example and then drawing from the rich American folk tradition as the raw material for their own music. Aaron Copland we talked about earlier, uh, even in jazz, George Gershwin, Duke Ellington. I could go on and on. Oh, yeah. Thankfully, it was a call that sort of came around, as you're saying, in the 20s and 30s following the popular music. But it's just a fantastic symphony. I recommend... Checking out as many recordings as you can. Find what you like, what you don't like. Um, the NSO recording is fantastic, as we heard. But that's all I have for Dvorak's ninth. Anything from you, Bill? Now, the only other thing I would say, too, is one of the things that's so fascinating to me about Dvorak and this very symphony is we've sort of adopted it as our first American symphony, if you will. And even to one of the other things that I think is interesting about this work, when Apollo 11 was going to the moon, one of the pieces of music that Neil Armstrong packed along with him for the long three-day journey from the earth to the moon was Dvorak's Ninth Symphony from the New World. How appropriate was that? And the other thing, too, is that had Dvorak not come to America and maybe still had written this symphony, it probably would have been received with the same degree of excitement and enthusiasm in Europe. But I don't think that it would have been the same work had he not come over here. I think that's true. Yeah. It took the influence of people like Jeanette Thurber and Harry T. Burley to bring these to him, like, you know, firsthand experience. Right. Would he have heard these things or even been aware of this music or this tradition had he not spent some time over here? And... American culture and classical music is so much richer for the few years that Dvorak spent on these shores. Well, thank you so much, Bill. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, John. 
Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown. For more information on this episode, visit the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org. And if you have any comments or episode ideas, send them to classicalbreakdown at weta.org. I'm John Banther. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown from Classical WETA.